0: Tonight's reading is from Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good evening. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for allowing me to open up God's word with you. Jason, thank you for those very, very kind words. Uh, Stacy and I are very appreciative of that. Um, Yeah, I wanted to... I wanted to be downtown or be here tonight and speak down on the floor because it just—it seems like standing up there, I'm just so far away from you, and um, I just want to be a little bit closer so I don't yell um, because I—I I don't have an inside voice, and the further I—I'm I, away in proximity, there's there's a there's a tendency to want to. I'll just talk louder, that way you can hear me. So I just want to come closer so I avoid that temptation, make it a little more intimate. Plus, I also want this to be a little bit, not a little bit, I want this to be interactive. So I want you to participate. I'm going to ask questions, and just like when you were in fifth grade and you used to raise your hand, I prefer that you do that, and if you don't, I'll just call on you, so... So so be ready. Before I was a preacher, I was a, a high school chemistry and physics teacher. So I'm, I'm used to calling on people and, and asking them questions. So uh, let's, uh, let's get to it here. Well, I'm, I'm going to pray here in a little bit. But by way of introduction, I want to start with this question. How many of you have ever wanted to be great at something? Okay, good. That's a good start. Lots of hands went up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Bo, what do you want to be great at? Shocking. Did you hear what he said? Say it loud. Yeah. Piano. Um, and for those who have heard Beau play, that's all of you. In, he's attained a level of excellence in, in his field and it required a, a lot of discipline to, and hard work and talent. But he aspired, aspires to greatness. Uh, how about someone else? Hands up. Hands up. Yes. Songwriting. Songwriting. Okay, songwriting, Tabitha, academic writing. academic writing, yes, I want to write a book, me too, awesome, you can give me some pointers here later on, uh, yes, Stacy, a gymnast, Olympic gymnast, do you still aspire to that, okay, those days are past, all right, uh, anyone else, aspire to greatness, so- Hale, soccer, art. art? Just throw them out. You don't have to raise your hand. Your job. Parenting. Okay, uh, this passage tonight, this passage tonight is about 12 individuals who aspire to greatness. Their understanding of what it means to be great is a little off kilter, is a little off kilter. So the context as we're looking here at Mark in chapter 9, and it would help if I turned this actually on. There we go. The context here is, is, is Jesus has been in public ministry healing and teaching and interacting with the Pharisees. And for quite a while now, it's been very public, lots of people around. And starting in verse 30, if you'll open your Bibles there, um, Starting in verse 30, it it says that they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And there he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And he was telling them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Contextually, what's happening here is he's bearing down and he's training these disciples He's teaching them. He's building them up. He's equipping them, and he's telling them, "I'm going to go away. I'm going to be." Cru- I'm, doesn't tell them crucified, but I'm going to give my life, and and they're struggling with this. They're not no. They're not sure what, what to do with it. And and as the scripture was read, you'll, you you remember that that as they were walking, as they were coming into Capernaum, Jesus asked them, "What were you talking about as as we were walking?" And they become silent. They become silent. Why do they become silent? They're embarrassed. And Mark says they're, they're, they became silent because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, she said embarrassed. What does it mean to be embarrassed? Ashamed. To be embarrassed means to feel shame to possess shame. Something, they know they've done something wrong. Now this is a key component that we have, to, we have to get straight if we're gonna look at this whole concept of greatness here. Why are they ashamed about the desire to be great? Or is that what they're ashamed of? Is it, is, is Mark trying to imply that the problem is wanting to be great? Should you be, Bo, should you be ashamed of wanting to be a great pianist? Should you be ashamed of wanting to be a great author? Should you be ashamed of wanting to be a great academic writer? Absolutely not. Then what are they ashamed of? I think sometimes in, in, our, in Christendom we have this kind of, well you really shouldn't want to, uh, you, you shouldn't want to be first. You shouldn't want to win. Well, it depends on why you want to win. So this is a nuanced teaching here. Jesus is going to course correct the disciples' understanding of greatness. So the title of the sermon is rather, to me it looks pretentious. I'm just going to be honest. Brooks is going to preach on how to be great. How does Brooks know anything about being great? Well, I've read the Bible. I'm just going to tell you what Jesus says... And, and hopefully we can all aspire to what it truly means to be great from the context of how the gospel makes a person great. Three things we're going to see. First of all, how the world sees it, it being greatness. Second, what Jesus or how Jesus sees it, it being greatness. And then, okay, how do you become great? How do you become great? In a way that that doesn't, you're not embarrassed about, it, you shouldn't be ashamed of it, but in a way that honors God, in a way that, 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 uh, that, that brings glory to Christ. So turn to your Bibles to Mark, chapter nine, and let's, uh, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up God's word and come together as a family of believers. I thank you for this church and for Jason and, and Bo and, and, and this congregation, Lord, your people called out to worship you together, to build into one another, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts as we open Your Word, and I pray that You would remind each and every one of these these precious people who have trusted You, and those who have not yet come to know You, Lord. I pray that You would help them to come to see You and believe in You, but Lord, remind them that they are each every one of them made in God's image, and that they were that they were knit together in their mother's womb for greatness. Not greatness uh, of their own right, but greatness in the in the sense that they are image bearers of of God, and and temples of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace that and to strive towards it in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, first of all, let's take a look at. Th- there's a reason. There's a reason they're ashamed. There's a reason, and that's because they know their understanding, or or they suspect rather that their desire for greatness is more like what the world thinks of greatness as opposed to what their master, their teacher, and their Lord, and their Savior thinks of greatness. So let's take a look at how the world sees it. So they come to Capernaum, and he was in the house, and he asked them, what are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So if you look up in Webster's, the dictionary says great is of an ability, a quality, or eminence considerably above the normal, above the normal or average. Okay, what does it mean to be average? Status quo. Status quo. Okay, so if, if you take the average, how many of you are University of Iowa students? Or you have been at one time? Okay, you it's not exactly the same thing. But when you take a test and, you, and then there's the bell curve, okay, what's the middle of the... Mm, yeah, he knows the bell curve. So mm, the middle of the bell curve, what's the middle of the bell curve? Okay, that's average. Okay, that's about the median or the average. It's, it's just like that's... What's that, C's? But C's get degrees, right? So C's or so forth. Then you go, you go to the right of the bell curve and you get down here, what's that? Greatness. Now we're talking about excellence. Okay, those are, those are the uh, curve breakers, right? And on the other side, on the other side of the bell curve down here, not so great. You blew it. Maybe you want to rethink your career. Maybe, maybe, maybe you want to drop this class before it's too late, right? So, so greatness is of a quality, ability, or eminence considerably above the normal or average. Okay, so that's just the way the world views greatness. Now that requires, that requires that you're keeping score. And it requires that everybody else keep score too. How many of you have played youth sports? Or higher level, level sports? Go, so go back to your youth days. Caleb, you're, you wanted to be great at soccer, right? Have you ever played soccer in a league where they didn't keep score. No. These leagues exist. I've seen news articles or read articles about parents that put their kids in baseball leagues and soccer leagues where they don't keep score. Here's a dirty little secret. The kids keep score. (laughs) You ask any five-year-old in a t-ball game where they don't keep score They know what the score is, and they know who won, and they know who lost. Am I preaching the truth? Everyone knows this because everyone keeps score. You see, the way the world views greatness, greatness equals status. And status requires that you compare yourself to everybody else. That's just the way the world works. Not saying it's right, it's just the way the world works. Status is, is what you get when you're standing higher than everyone else in whatever your field is or whatever it is you've, you want to be great in. So it could be the accumulation of wealth, it, it could be a being a pianist, but here's the thing Beau could be an excellent pianist but if his goal is status it's not good it's not it's not it's not enough to be great he has to be greater than there has to be a comparison with other pianists that's the way it is so if grant wants to be a, a an excellent a great artist and his goal and his concern is status it's not just that he's a good writer it's it's that his books sell more than other authors See, that's what status is. And that's how the world views greatness. Now here's a question, you have to ponder this. Where do you measure yourself against other people? The question presumes that you do. Some of you might think, well, that's rather presumptuous. No, it's not. Every one of us, everyone but Jesus struggles with this. I do. And I, I know better. I know better. I know that pe- to be great in the eyes of God and to be great in the kingdom of heaven and call, exercising my calling and my vocation means that I'm to be, f- to be faithful to my calling, not necessarily successful, but I cannot help measuring my status against the success of other people in my vocation. And I, I have to repent of that, but I, I know it. That's, see, that's the, I I get caught up in this just the same way the disciples did. So to give them a little slack, let's contextually understand what they're up against here. So they're following Jesus. Yes? Yeah, they're, that's why they call disciples. Jesus has told them repeatedly, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to give my life. Right? And and just just a little bit ago, Peter, James and John were on the mount of transfiguration which was totally awesome and Peter didn't want to leave. And but they came down off of the mount of transfiguration and they came into the valley and the other nine disciples were trying to cast out a demon of a demon possessed boy and they were unable. They were failing. They were failing. They were unable to do it. And Jesus, how long am I going to put up with this generation? And he casts the demon out. And they say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, this kind comes only out by prayer. And some translations say prayer and fasting. And then he keeps telling them he's got to go away. He's going to be, he's going to be killed. And, and, and they know, and, on, and they're walking behind him. they know that okay, let's figure this out. He keeps saying he's going to be killed, but he said the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God doesn't end. So if he's killed, the kingdom of God is going to go on. So there has to be a successor. Which one of us that he's chosen, which one of us is going to be the leader? So this is a very pragmatic discussion. So we we can give them a little bit of slack here. This isn't just about jockeying about who's tougher, who's stronger, who's better. No, they're like... He's got, who's going who's gonna to lead this movement? So it makes total sense. So how do you determine who the leader is? Well, which of us is greater? How many demons did you cast out? Well, you guys couldn't even cast out that demon-possessed boy. Remember, they had all been sent out two by two. They've been preaching. They've been teaching. They've been healing. They've been casting out demons. So they all have experience in doing the works that Jesus has done and they're trying to figure out which one of them is going to. And then when Jesus, hey, what are you guys talking about? Nothing. They're embarrassed. They feel, they feel shame. Like they shouldn't have been talking about it. But it's a, it's, it's a legitimate discussion about who's going to be the success. They don't know. They don't know the context. They haven't figured out that he's going to rise again. Where do you measure yourself against others? Academics, athletics. For those of you that are a little bit further on, it's how well your kids do in comparison to other kids, money, wealth. Pastor Jason as he leads this congregation into the future here's the beautiful thing but awful thing about this congregation most of you're going to be gone in 4 years and maybe other people will come in and maybe they won't so there's a tendency of guys like Jason and guys like me to measure their success and measure their self-worth based upon how many people come and listen and how many people get involved I'm not saying that's right I'm just saying that's just what happens. And there's a tendency among you to look at yourself and say well did I get into the grad program that I wanted? No, I didn't. Why not? Because there were 20 other people greater than you. Or were they greater than you? Well, according to the status of the, you see the problem? You you can't get away with it from this. It's just it's part of the air we breathe. And that's the way the world views greatness. And it's so easy, even even when you know better, it's so easy to get caught up in this. So easy to get caught up in this. So let's take a look at two problems with how the world sees this. The first is that this view assumes that life is a zero-sum game. How many of you have heard that phrase, zero-sum game? Okay, zero-sum game means that there are winners and there are losers. And if you don't win, by definition, you lose. Another way to look at it is if Johnny has two apples and Billy has no apples and Johnny gives two apples to Billy, how many apples does Johnny now have? According to life is a zero-sum game. It's not a trick question. Just do the math. If you gave away two apples when he used to have two, how many does he now have? Zero. That's how a zero-sum game works because there's only two apples. But life is not a zero-sum game when your father owns an orchard. So if Johnny's dad owns an orchard and Billy has no apples and he takes his two apples today and he gives them to Billy today, tomorrow how many apples will Johnny have? The answer is as many as he wants because all he needs to do is ask his dad. That's not how we view the universe. But that's how the world views the universe. Is life is a zero sum game and there are winners and there are losers. So if you want to be a great pianist, but somebody else gets more notoriety, well, I guess you're not great in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of you if that's how you view the universe and that's how you view the world. That's not true. And, and here's, here's the second problem. Most of us will never, never stand on top of the podium. But even those who do won't stay there. He just won't stay there. I have a very, very good friend. I know a lot of people who have literally, literally stood on the pinnacle, the being the best in the world at what they do. I know five or six guys who have been better than every other human being at what they do. That's, that's an accomplishment. They're literally great in that, the world's definition. All of them, or rather, let me rephrase that, none of them were able to stay there because someone came along and knocked them off of the hill. These guys are Olympic wrestlers, world champions. One of them is a good friend, Terry Brands. He comes to the North Liberty congregation I competed him with in college. He's, he's one of the coaches at Iowa. He's won worlds twice, and he, he took uh, bronze in the 2000 Olympic Games. He's pretty good. Won nationals twice when he was in college. And... About six years ago, he was talking to a guy that taught Sunday school in, in North Liberty. And he was just, he was grousing about a match that he lost in, in Sydney in the semifinals, which kicked him into the medal round for bronze and not gold. And he just says, if, if, you've, if you know the Brands Brothers, this is, this is how they get. They're like, I just, I just can't get over it. I'm just bitter. Ugh you know, like a dog, his teeth are barren. He's like, I just can't get over it. And Bart Floyd, the guy that was teaching Sunday school class, just looked him straight in the eyes. He says, well, it's simple. Oh, and he go, Terry's like, I, I want to stand before God and I want to ask, why did I lose? Why did I, why did I lose? Why couldn't I win? And, and Bart Floyd, who'd, who'd never wrestled before, he's just a Sunday school teacher, Terry, it's simple. He was better than you. <laughs> I've known Terry for over 40 years. I'm, he's this tall. Well, not this tall. He's not very big. I would be terrified to say that to that man. It, I texted Terry and I told him that I use that in a sermon illustration. I'm going to tell you what he said. What did you, you say? No, he didn't. He said, Bart looked at me and said, That's easy to answer. He was better than you. And here's the next thing he typed. It fundamentally changed me. Everybody gets knocked off the podium. But if you think that life is a zero-sum game and that you think that your status and your greatness requires that you stay there, even if you become great, you won't stay great. See, that's the problem. That's the problem. It assumes life is a zero-sum game, and even if you can become the best in the world, you won't remain there. It's what Solomon said. It's vanity. Even if you win, you won't stay there, and no one will remember and no one will care. Some of you are like, I don't even know who Terry Brands is. Exactly. Exactly. That's my point. So that's what the problem, and there are other problems, but because we don't have time, and we could go forth and shoot all sorts of holes with the problem of how the world sees it. But let's move on, and, and let's take a look at how does Jesus see it? How does Jesus see it? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, and he sat down, and he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. Classic Jesus. Throw out this riddle wrapped in an enigma and just let it hang. So you want to be first. I want to be great. I want to be first. Perfect. Be last and the servant of all. What? That's the upside down kingdom. Everything is upside down. You want to be great? become the very least of these and the servant of all. That's that's the ticket to greatness. That's how you become great. I wanted to dispel any false notions that as a follower of Christ you shouldn't aspire to greatness because it's absolute garbage. It's not true. So let's just take a look at a few things just to help you understand that if you desire and aspire to greatness, that's a good thing and it's okay. Just make sure your definition of greatness is in check here. First of all, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, God says, Let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In the image of God, He created them. He told them, Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And then at the whole, at the end of that, God declared, the other other five days, at the end of those five days, God says, and it was good the first five days. At this, the last day, he said, it was very good. This is great. I've created two human beings. They are one flesh. They are subduing the earth. They are selflessly serving one another. They are are carrying out the mandate that I have called them to do. They have embraced their purpose and this is great. They are great. This is great. This is awesome. For a while, until the garden, until the serpent, until they no longer put themselves as saw themselves as servants, but they saw themselves as usurpers, and they started putting themselves first, and they became self-conscious. In, well, they were already self-conscious. They became self-centered and self-protective. Then it became a zero-sum game. And they became just like the rest of us. But in the beginning, it was not so. But then Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28, Jesus says, so you went out to the desert to listen to John the Baptist. What did you expect when you went out? Were you looking for a man dressed in fine clothing who sleeps in palaces? No, no, that's not who you went. You went out to see a prophet. And I tell you the truth, that there is no one no one born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus does not have a problem with pointing someone out and saying, there's a great human being. In fact, he's better than most human beings. But he didn't finish there. He says, oh, and by the way, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So from that, does Jesus have a problem with pointing someone out an individual and saying that is a great human being in fact greater than others evidently not because he's done it and then we have in John chapter 14 verse 12 through 14 prior to that in in in, in the earlier parts of that chapter this is the last night of the uh, with the disciples before he's arrested and then tried and then crucified And he tells them, I'm going away and you can't follow. But you know the way, I'm the way, the truth and the life. None of you can come to the Father except through me. And then he tells them, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send to you the wonderful counselor, which is the Holy Spirit. He's with you now, but he's going to be in you. And he says, I tell you the truth. Whoever believes in me will do greater works than even I have done. really? Do you believe in Jesus? I'm assuming most of you do. Do you believe that he's called you to do greater works than he's done? Some of you are like, I think I'm supposed to say yes, (laughs) but I'm not sure how that's possible. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that when you're at your grandma's funeral or some funeral in the next six months, that Jesus expects you to stand up and say, Aunt Edna, rise, come forth, and take off the grave clothes. That's not what he means. That's not what he means. What he means is, according to his definition of greatness, he says to be great you must become the least of these and the servant of all. And that means that if you embrace your identity in Christ through his gospel, you can do greater works even than Christ has done. Because remember, up until this point when he said those words, no one had the Holy Spirit yet. Those throngs that followed him, they cried for his blood shortly thereafter and crucified him. When it was all said and done, after the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there's only about 100 followers of Jesus. It wasn't until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on these disciples, that the movement began to take off. He's called you to greatness. Don't shy away from that. That, that doesn't mean you're going to be all great at the same things. But he has called us to be great. Let's take a look here. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Matthew, I believe it's Matthew, it could be Mark or Luke. Matthew records this same thing. And he said, he said, took this child, he took it in his arms and says, you must become like this little child. You want to be great? Become like this child. Do you know who has the least amount of status in this room right now? Little Obadiah. Why? He can't do anything except eat and poop his pants. That, that There's nothing... There's no one with less status than a little child, and Jesus picks up this little child. Listen, you guys are jockeying a bunch, talking about who's greater, who can cast out more demons, who's a better preacher, who's a better leader, who's better, who's better, who's better, who's better, who's better, who's on the right end of the bell curve. If you want to be great, you've got to step away from the bell curve, and you have to abandon your desire for status. You have to become like this child. Children are not jockeying for status. Well... Unless they're on the soccer field or a T ball, then they're jockeying for status. But they, they learn it. They learn that that's how you get strokes. I remember growing up as a kid. All I wanted to do was play. You know, I mean, yes, some kids do. They just play, they have fun. And, but I grew up in my dad's hometown in Newton, Iowa. And my dad also grew up in Newton. My dad uh, was an outstanding athlete, he got multiple scholarship offers from D1 schools in football and basketball. He came here and he played football in the 60s. Um, And I remember growing up as a little kid, I would hear this all the time, you're Gary's boy, aren't you? Are you gonna be tough as your old man? What, What did I learn? Greatness equals status. And I began to desire that. I went from the little kid who was content with just being a human being and having fun and playing to, to longing for status and a desire to be better than everyone else. And I, ch- I chased that with an unholy passion. It was I, I didn't want to be just good. I wanted to be great. I didn't want to be just great. I wanted to be dominant. That's how I ended up here. And I believe that life was a zero-sum game. And when I lost in the NCAA finals, how many of you ever watched the Olympics and found it odd that the announcers say things like, and such and such won the silver? How many of you ever you find that odd? I didn't win a silver. I lost. Do you understand? That's how I viewed life. And it's still ingrained in me, but it wasn't always so. And Jesus has this little kid. He says, listen, you've, this kid has no status. You've got to embrace this child. And you have to become like a child. Not be childish, but in the sense that a child is not striving for status. They're just content to be. I also know the competitor in you, or the competitor in me, rather, Is struggling with what I just said because you're thinking, wait a minute, that sounds like garbage to me. If I buy into that wholeheartedly, that means I lose my competitive edge. I remember when I first became a Christian, I'm reading, I'm reading a commentary on the book of Genesis in the airport in between on the way to a wrestling meet with the team. And Gable comes up, he's like looking at me, he says. What are you reading? Like, it's a commentary on Genesis, it's a book of the Bible. He's like, hmm, you're not going to go passive on me, are you? What's the assumption? Following Jesus and stepping on a wrestling mat in the NCAA tournament, they just don't go together. You're going to lose your competitive edge. It's, it's bogus, it's not true. You can strive for excellence in the sport of wrestling, in music, in writing, in parenting, in finance. You can strive for excellence and even stand on the top of the podium and be great in the eyes of Jesus. So don't lose that. Don't lose that. Embrace that. So they didn't learn the lesson, by the way. This is the next chapter. He has to reteach it. James and John come and say, Hey, when you take your throne, can we sit on your right and your left? In other words, will you give us the status of being your right and your left hand man? Jesus says, Can you be baptized with the baptism I have to undergo? Oh, yeah, 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 we can do that. Well, you will, but as for whether you're going to sit on my right and left, that's not my call. It's not my call. And then he tells them this, he calls them to himself and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and they're great ones, there's that word again, exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so amongst you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the deal, I've learned this lesson I've forgotten this lesson, I've ignored this lesson and I have to relearn this lesson over and over. Because I know Jesus is telling the truth, but when when it gets hard, I still find myself comparing myself with the status of others. That's not how it works. So, okay, now we know, we know how the world sees it, we know how Jesus sees it. Now let's 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 go to the finish line and let's how to become great. Three things, an example, instruction, and explanation. The example is John the Baptist, chapter three, verse 25 through 30. Jesus is, he's, this is new, he's just entering his ministry. and He's, he's gone public and, and John said, hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of John's disciples have now become Jesus' disciples. And one of John's disciples is like, master, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. And John the Baptist says this. He says that I must decrease and he must increase. I rejoice in this. He understood that his role... As in the words of Jesus, being the greatest man born of a woman, he understood his role. He understood his purpose. His purpose was not to stand above everyone else. His purpose was to shine a light on the Son of God. That's what made him great. That's what true greatness is, is when you and I find and execute our God-given purpose using the spirit gifts that the spirit of God has given us in the calling, including the vocation that he has called us to. Which might be in music, which might be in the arts, which might be in finance. Or vocational ministry. But it's not about status. So many pastors struggle with their people leaving their church and going to some other church. It's kind of like college, NCAA football. It's like the transfer porthole, but it's the church. I'm entering the transfer porthole. What does that mean? I don't like my pastor anymore. Or I don't, this church has better youth programs. And so when they enter the transfer porthole, pastor such and such gets been out of shape. John the Baptist doesn't. Because he doesn't, his goal is not to acquire a following. His goal is to point people to Jesus. Boy, that's so, it's so easy to preach. It's really hard to do. How do you get to the place that John the Baptist is at? The passage there is, is <laughs> it's the book of Jesus. You've read that, right? <laughs> Let's, let's say Mark. That would be a typo. There is no book of Jesus. The whole thing is the book of Jesus, right? He's the word of God made flesh. <laughs> I corrected that in the second service this morning, but uh, failed to remember that it hadn't been corrected yet. So Mark 8, 34 through 35, Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay, so there, simple. You want to be, be great? Well, just deny yourself and take up your cross. But he doesn't tell anyone what that means. Does that mean to get a wooden beam, get nailed to it, and atone for your sins? No. Does that mean insert yourself in all sorts of artificial forms of suffering that you didn't bring on yourself, but but you've got does it mean that suffering will make you great? You You know what's happening right now? The kids are coming up and saying, Brooks, stop preaching. It's time to be done. The kids with no status are telling the guy who wants status, it's time for you to step down. So I'm going to land this plane. So take up your cross. But he doesn't tell us what that means. So I want you to turn, and we'll close here. We'll close here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul's going to tell us what that means. Paul's going to tell us what that means. Paul says, "I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." I want you to know first first of all, Paul, before he became a follower of Christ, in his own eyes and the eyes of the world was great. He was a Pharisee above Pharisees. He was more disciplined than all his peers and he worked harder than all his peers. And he said it was all dung, it was all garbage, it was all trash, it didn't mean anything. Until he met Jesus, and now he's truly great. How does he become great? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what, that's what it means to carry your cross and deny yourself. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. To be crucified with Christ, to carry your cross means that you identify yourself with Jesus in his death in His burial and His resurrection. Some of you don't believe that you can be great. You don't believe it, why? Because you're below average, you don't measure up, you've ruined your life, you've hurt other people, you've done things that you're ashamed of, or you're not smart enough, you're not quick enough, you're not strong enough, you're not this, you're not that. And when you identify yourself, when it's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in you, when you've been crucified with Christ, Understand this, that the Father, the creator of the universe, looks at you and he sees his son because you have been united with Jesus. You have been united with Jesus and when he sees you, he sees his son's perfect righteousness. And in Christ, you are great. Furthermore, he has given you the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit has given you gifts, multitudes of gifts. And he wants you to use those in the service of others. And in the service of others, when you lift them up, you become great. When you stop living for yourselves, when you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ who died for you and loved you, then the greatness of the Savior who gave his life for you flows through you into other people. It has nothing to do with status It has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with ambition. It has everything to do with the Son of God who lives in you and flows through you. So as I end this sermon, know this, Grace Community Church downtown, that you are great. And know this, That if you believe in Jesus Christ, he will do greater works in and through you than even he did before he went to the cross. And this community will not be the same because of it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for giving your life. Thank you that you are a great and a glorious savior. Lord, we confess that our definition of greatness is often closer to the world's definition of seeking status than it is anything else. And we repent of that. But we also repent of the idea that we're supposed to be anything less than great. Lord, I pray that you would truly help us to understand what it means to be great, to be embraced as your child, and to live a life that brings glory and honor to you. I pray for this church. I pray for Jason. I pray for these people, Lord, that they would truly embrace the calling that you have for them in the years to come, the short-term and the long-term, and that you would use each one of them, your church, your body, this expression of a local church for great things. Here in this city, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.